Chastity is a virtue, like courage or honesty, that applies to your sexuality. It does not eliminate your sexual attractions or desires, but orders them according to the demands of authentic human love. And so what this purity of heart does is it frees us to love, and it also frees us to know if we're being loved. So it frees us to love because if I can't say no to my sexual impulses, then saying yes to them really just means nothing. Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst on the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. Happy New Year and welcome back. I trust your holidays were filled with family friends and too much food get moving and stay healthy setting goals for fitness can be easy maybe your goal is to fit back into your jeans or or maybe drop 20 pounds or get back to that same hole in your belt but setting goals as a parish leader can be convoluted and therefore easy to put off as we give way to the whirlwind of ministry we help parish and diocesan leaders get the results they always dreamed possible. Don't get me wrong, it's not easy, and it will require tremendous commitment, but it is possible. If this is the year you want to commit to growing as a leader so that God may be glorified to a greater degree through your parish, reach out to us at ronhuntley.com and let's have a conversation to see if coaching is for you. Make 2022 the year everything turned around. Today's conversation is amazing. Jason Everett of the Chastity Project is my guest. Enjoy and share this conversation. Lift off when the clock has started. Our guest today is Jason Everett. Jason is an author of many books, including Pure Manhood, Pure Love, The Dating Blueprint, and many more. He also heads up the Chastity Project. He's doing incredible work when it comes to God's plan for human relationships and human love. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for having me on, Ron. Good to be with you. Wonderful. I'd love to start. I always love starting with people's personal story of faith. Uh, Can you share with us a little bit of of what point in your life did your your relationship with Jesus really kick into high gear or, or really shift in a way that was permanent? Yeah, I, I mean, I was raised in a Catholic family, but was quite a bit sitting on the fence, especially during the high school years of having like one set of friends in the church, then another set of friends outside of the church and just kind of living a double life where, you know, I'm going to youth group and I'm going to Sunday mass and then I'm looking at porn and then I'm vandalizing and then I'm doing horrible stuff. And, um, you know, that wears on you after a time where your beliefs and your behaviors just really don't line up. And, um, and then also intellectually, I mean, I was I was Catholic because I was raised Catholic. I mean, if I was raised Buddhist, I'd be Buddhist, you know, and then you start realizing that as a teen. Um, and I remember one evangelical street corner preacher talking to him one day with some friends from Arizona State University. And he kind of called us out on being Catholic. And uh, just started challenging us from the Bible. And I just had no idea how to answer the God. 
It's like, well, you teach that Mary was ever a virgin, right? I'm like, yeah, Mary ever virgin. Then he you know, whips out Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has brothers and sisters. Like, I have no apologetics background at this point. Like, I have no idea how to, well, the Greek word is a boy, and it can mean nephew and relative. I have no idea. And then he just hops from subject to subject, and we had no idea how to answer the guy. And so I kind of went home with my tail between my legs and realized, okay, I really don't have any sound reasons for why I'm Catholic other than I was raised that. And so that sent me on a bit of an intellectual quest of, okay, who, who knows what's right here? You know, who, who knows the proper interpretation? And so I started reading the scriptures from beginning to end and was also at this time in a really good youth group, a very devout youth minister, a good priest, and started going to adoration more often. And then just, just gradually starting to bring my life more in conformity with my beliefs. So it was like an overnight lightning bolt kind of thing. And then ended up going to Franciscan University of Steubenville and being surrounded by the students there, the devotion of the faculty members, these saintly priests on campus. Um, It was so attractive. And when you see God's plan for just human life, um, it's a beautiful thing. So you want to follow it, not just because it's good and it's true, but because it's beautiful. There's this magnetism to people who are living truly prayerful lives. And you want a piece of that because you see in them an authenticity and integration of their faith that you don't often see in yourself or in others. And so it's a very gradual process. Still, that's one underway today, but thanks be to God, was able to get rid of the porn back at the end of high school and start to persevere in that new life. That's awesome. I love I love how that took place. There's so, such a common story for people that, you know, at some point, and it's not uncommon for it to be in high school or university, is it? That 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 duality that we can live sometimes all of a sudden makes us uncomfortable. And then we have a choice. And, and your choice was to continue to, to lean in instead of pull away. I love that. That is so cool. And so tell us a little bit about at what point did your ministry start to evolve with this chastity project? Well, it was during college, I started leading high school retreats with some friends, and the kids would open up on retreat about what they were struggling with. A lot of it had to do with their sexuality, and they had just no guidance whatsoever. Their parents' marriages were a mess, their relationships were a mess, and I realized that they have no formation in the subject of chastity. At the same time, I was uh, doing three years of sidewalk counseling in front of an abortion clinic in Pittsburgh, and just started feeling late. Like, why am I meeting these women who are having an abortion? in 45 minutes. Why am I meeting them now when they're 25? Why can't I meet them when they're 15 um, before they ever dated this guy? Because if they understood what real love was supposed to look like, maybe they never would have dated this guy. It'd be in this difficult situation today. So I realized I'm kind of out here throwing sandbags on the banks of a flooded river when there's a dam that's broken a quarter mile upstream. And unless that thing is plugged, then I can spend all day dealing with the supply of abortion, but it's not going to solve that much of the issue unless I deal with the demand for it, which is caused through unchastity. And so started putting two two together between the retreats and the crisis pregnancy. And I was also uh, learning John Paul's theology of the body, love and responsibility, discovering, wow, this is in my hands, the antidote of so much of this hurt and confusion. So I started sharing that with the teens and then the light bulb went on and you could see the kids just just grabbing onto this and wanting this for themselves. And so I realized like, this is the antidote for this culture of death, God's plan for human life and love. And so I started pivoting more of my ministry efforts into the young people and teaching them the theology of the body and doing essentially what's marriage preparation when it needs to happen. You know, when they're 14, 15, 18, instead of waiting 
some pre-canal weekend to trying to cram in a decade of marriage prep that never took place. Oh, boom. That's a mic drop right there. Boom. I can, I can feel that's so cool. So for those that are listening, because not all my uh, listeners are Catholic and not all of them are as engaged in faith. Um, mm-hmm. And so the whole idea of chastity, break that down for them so they can understand. Yeah, a lot of times the word chastity has a negative rap because, for one, people think it means abstinence, and that just means no sex. Um, It it means more than that, though. It doesn't mean celibacy. Celibacy means the state of not being married, so it's distinct from that as well. Chastity is a virtue, like courage or honesty, that applies to your sexuality. It does not eliminate your sexual attractions or desires, but orders them according to the demands of authentic human love. So what this purity of heart does is it frees us to love, and it also frees us to know if we're being loved. So it frees us to love because if I can't say no to my sexual impulses and saying yes to them really just means nothing. I can't give what I don't possess. And so only through self-mastery can I really make a gift of myself. And so, if, like, for example, a man never really grows in chastity and self-mastery, and then he gets married, he's not really going to make love to his wife. He's going to use his wife's body as an outlet for what he thinks of as his sexual needs, And I think the woman's heart can perceive the difference. But it also frees you to know if you're being loved, because if a person won't date you unless you are giving them sexual pleasures, then it's typically not you they're in pursuit of, but the pleasure that they're trying to get at your expense. And so it brings a person's motives up to the surface and authenticates love in a way. And so it defends love from lust. And um, and so it's a virtue we all have to practice, whether I'm 16 years old and single or a married man with kids or a priest or whatever. This is a virtue that applies to all of us. Yeah. And what's the, what's the, what's the pathway if, if you're not going to practice that? Yeah, whatever. I'm not interested. I, I'm good. Like, what's the, what's, what, like that has a trajectory of its own, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I mean, people say, well, chastity, it's really, it's, it's so hard. Like, not really. I mean, think like. What 16-year-old is having a harder day? I mean, the girl who's waking up this morning wondering, am I pregnant? Is my mom going to find out? Did that guy just use me? Was he just flirting with another girl? Is he going to leave me one day? Or the girl that wakes up like, oh, I got a math test tomorrow. Like, I mean, really, like, who's got a harder lifestyle? I mean, you're going to pay a price no matter how you live, um, chastity or unchastity. But man, the weight of unchastity is much heavier than the weight that you carry with chastity. Yeah, you're going to get resistance, but resistance builds strength. I mean, no matter how you live, you're going to get called names. I mean, you know, you're a tease and you're this, or you're, you know, a bunch of other less pleasant names they call you if you're unchaste. So look, you're going to get called names either way. But if you're going to pay a price, at least make it an investment instead of just shredding your cash. Yeah, so true. And how does that how does that look different for for guys and girls? Like in in terms of living a chase life or or the consequences of not living a chase life culturally. What are you seeing? Well, I mean, sex is inherently sexist. Women always pay the biggest price. I mean, if a girl becomes sexually active, you know, during the early teenage years, she's more the sooner she becomes sexually active, she's more likely to have more breakups, STDs, out of wedlock pregnancy, become a single mom, live under the poverty level, have a divorce, have an abortion, be depressed, attempt suicide. I mean, on and on. And then the longer she waits to have sex, these numbers completely change. And she's much more likely to have a positive social outcome with her life. Now, it doesn't mean if you're not a virgin or a terrible life. But what that means is as a guy, how can you look at that and say, oh, but I love my girlfriend enough. I can expose her to all that stuff. It's like, that, that's not love. It, it's using. 
And so chastity, the demands for it are, are the same for men and women. It's unfair to say, well, that's women's job. I mean, she should be the chastity cop. It's her job to do all that stuff. You know, and if she gets used, well, she was wearing the wrong outfit anyway. And it, like that whole sexist mentality is just toxic that no, it's not the woman's job to be the chastity cop. And no matter what outfit she chooses to wear, she does deserve respect. Now, granted, a lot of these outfits don't incline a man toward respect, but she deserves respect nonetheless, because the, the, the problem of lust is not caused by the human body. That's why so many women resent the message of modesty. It's because for thousands of years, the whole problem of lust in the heart of the man has been blamed on the body of the woman. But the way I look at it, is what's the cause of robbery? Is the cause of robbery the presence of jewelry in the window of the store or the presence of greed in the heart of the robber? Greed causes robbery, jewelry does not. And so instead of blaming the woman's body for the cause of lust, that shifts the blame from where the healing actually has to happen, which is in our hearts. Do I even know how to look at a woman? let alone how to treat one. And so chastity, it's a level playing field. Instead of just blaming the women and making them live under this double standard that if a guy has sex and a girl has sex, you know, she gets shamed and condemned on social media and he gets congratulated in the locker room. Chastity levels that playing field. We're all called to the same standards. Mm. Amen. And I, you know, I love that lust is boring podcast. You guys have to check out Jason's podcast and, and the resources. Like I'm just going to say now, and I'll say it at the end, like go to chastity.com and check out all the resources that have been put together to help think this stuff through, have conversations, support family, support teens. It is so cool. The work that you and your team are doing. Unbelievable. Um, you know, when you look at, or when I consider, uh, the schools and and I'm in Canada and the teaching that happens with around around sexuality in the school system, the school board's thinking around around this stuff is is very different from when I grew up. Uh, what what I don't know, comment on what you're seeing in the confusion and the teaching, like how is that helpful or not helpful? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, two major sources of confusion. One, this idea that, well, hey, you know, kids are going to do it anyway, so we need to help them to protect themselves and be responsible. Because if we're not passing out contraceptives and telling the kids to practice safe sex, well, we're going to have an epidemic of STDs and unwed pregnancies. So, man, give the kids more birth control. That approach has been tried and utterly failed globally. And it's like people are just clinging on to the remnants of this thing, but the evidence is overwhelmingly in the favor of that doesn't work. All it does is give kids a false sense of security to engage in risky behavior. And now the number one STD, which has killed more women than AIDS has because it can cause cervical cancer, human papillomavirus, spreading like wildfire because safe sex is not effective in, trans in preventing its transmission. But not only the physiological fallout of it, just the emotional. I mean, the whole idea of safe sex reduces a woman to her genitals because it implies that as long as she's not pregnant and she doesn't have gonorrhea, she's safe. It's like, how come she's crying her eyes out after a broken sexual relationship? They use protection. It's because sex is not a biological act. It's a human act. It involves the heart, the body, the soul, the family. And to give a kid a piece of plastic and tell them now you're safe and responsible and protected, it's just setting them for a, a world of hurt. And it doesn't even work when it comes to pregnancy. In fact, Planned Parenthood openly admitted the majority of teenage pregnancies are caused by contraceptive failure, not by the failure to use contraception. I mean, let that sink in. 
This is the nation's largest abortion provider openly admitting that most teen pregnancies are the result of contraceptive failure. And if that's the reality of what Planned Parenthood is admitting, then how on earth do you give more contraception and have a different result? No, you end up having a more robust abortion industry, which is precisely what they're seeking. And so it isn't the answer to all that. And so that's one issue is the safe sex thing. The other thing where the schools are getting it so wrong is in terms of human sexuality as male and female. They're essentially telling kids that, well, look, gender is just a social construct. And it doesn't matter what your body is. What matters is your feelings. And so if your feeling doesn't align with your biology, well, you could be a boy on Saturday and a girl on Sunday, and you could be a boy and girl on Monday, and neither a boy nor a girl on Tuesday. And that's reality. No, this is not reality. Making kids believe this is child abuse. And then we're not only giving them these social transitionings, but the puberty blockers, the cross-sex hormones, and then the surgery. And when the kids begin this process, typically what they found is if a kid does not get set on that road of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormone therapy, about 85 to 90% of the time, the kid will come to identify with their biological sex in time as puberty progresses 85, 90% of the time. But if you just start those puberty blockers, uh, they, some studies have shown as much as a hundred percent persistence, meaning they go on to the hormones, they go on to the surgery, whereas otherwise it's like 90% they, you know, let go of this and were able to, you know, identify with their biological sex. But when they go through the whole process, their suicide rate ends up being 19 times higher than the general population. And people say, well, that's just because they're not accepted and embraced. It's like, well, no, D gender dysphoria is typically one mental health issue among a, a whole assortment of comorbidities, whether it be autism, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, and to mutilate a kid's body, making him think that this is going to solve all these issues. It is absolute malpractice. I mean, when we're putting girls on these hormones, I mean, these are the same levels of androgen that are released by cancerous tumors in a woman's body. I mean, this is to be treated, not to be injected into these children's bodies. And it's causing lifelong sterility, the scarring. And they think, oh, well, you know, if you get your double mastectomy at the age of 15, then you can just reverse that later on. No, you can't. You will never be able to breastfeed a child for the rest of your life if you make this life-altering decision as some teenager. It's like getting a tattoo when you're 12 years old, thinking, oh, this is going to be cool when I'm 28 years old. At least the tattoo can get erased. These things cannot. And so we're seeing literally a tsunami of detransitioners starting to show up right now. And people have gone through the whole process and realized it did not promise them everything that they were told. And, you know, up in Canada, there's even bills getting pushed through right now that are trying to, like, ban conversion therapy. And that sounds like a great idea. Oh, yeah, well, we shouldn't, like, force kids to do this or that. But they're making this conversion therapy language so broad that if you even attempt to help a young person to feel comfortable in their own body, you could get fined and put in prison for this, lose your license and whatever. And so we've got to step up for these kids and be willing to be persecuted to give these kids the truth because gender theory is not loving and accepting these kids. It is child abuse based in a very faulty anthropology. Wow. That's crazy. And if, if anybody was wondering if uh, Jason has any strong feelings about that, that has been settled right here <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> talk to me about, talk to me about the whole concept because the whole idea of authentic love and relationships. Tell, tell me about that in terms of God's plan for love. 
Yeah, well, we got to define love. Like, what what is love? Uh, love is to will the good of the other. It's to do what is best for that other person. So it's not merely a feeling or a sentiment or an attraction. All those those do play a role in love. Uh, it's a decision, an act of the will that consists of preferring the good of the other to the good of oneself. And so we need that working definition of love because if we don't have that, then lust love gets just reduced to sentimentality. Uh, but what we've got to do is, am I actually doing what is best for this other person? And so we can take that sound definition of love and apply it to our sexuality. Then we can really morally assess our actions. Am I really loving my girlfriend by risking her getting pregnant, by doing stuff behind her parents' back, by doing things with her she'd never want to tell a future husband if I'm not that man? Like, is this really an expression of love or is it an expression of use. And so we're not trying to tell teenagers not to love each other. We're trying to encourage them to love one another. And this does not require this neurotic, repressive attitude. Not at all. It's a, it's a healthy integration where we're learning self-mastery. We're training ourselves in faithfulness because, you know, if I don't know how to say no to temptation before marriage, why would that change if I get a ring on my finger? You know, we've got to resist lust in all of its forms especially where it's assaulting young people the most today, which I think is the topic of pornography. Mm. That's what I was going to ask you too. Like with, with, uh, I just think to myself, I'm 52 and I think, my gosh, my kids are going to parent very differently than I did because they grew up with devices. I didn't <laughs> so remember the dial up internet. That was a disaster. <laughs> like <laughs> take five minutes to see an ad from Canadian tire. Like it was, it was really slow. Yeah. Uh, and yet kids are growing up with access to this stuff that, that is so horrifying. And, and so what, what's that look like? You know, you were saying that you were able to to kind of kick the pornography pull or what have you and as a high school student. What, what are you seeing now and, and what hope do you have for these young men and, and women? Well, it's, it's pretty bad. I mean, especially after COVID, when there's so much social isolation and withdrawal, um, th these kids are getting hooked on porn younger and younger. They say the average age for a boy is between 9 and 11 years old. And it's not just the boys getting hooked either. I mean, I've had girls write me letters and say, you know, I've been addicted to really hardcore internet porn for several years, and I finally broke free. And I have looked at it in two years. I'm hoping I can stay strong because next year I'm going into high school. And I know temptations are going to be even worse there. This is going on in every school across the country. And these poor kids, when it comes time to love, like they have no idea. I mean, I'm meeting kids who are telling me that they've been addicted to pornography for 15 years old, and they're only 22 years old. Like they're getting hooked on porn in early elementary school and the day comes to love and they don't have a clue because what porn does is the surge of dopamine that floods your brain through looking at pornography is so far beyond what your brain is accustomed to. I mean, you could see in one afternoon of looking at porn, more flawless women than any man in history could have seen in hundreds of lifetimes. And you're getting it one afternoon, back the next day, back the next week. But then you come off the porn and the baseline is so much lower than it was before. You're literally bored with reality. You're bored with yourself and you need to go back for that additional hit. And so it's creating this cocktail of essentially a neurological drug addiction. And how do you transition from that into love? Well, you don't. What ends up happening is tragic. There's a hospital here in the States where they said they're seeing 1,000 girls a year that are being sexually abused 
And it isn't by the clergy or some living boyfriend or some creepy guy selling candy out of his trunk down the street. No, it's 11 to 15-year-old boys who've been exposed to porn. And they say the average girl getting abused is about eight years old, where it's his little sister having a slumber party with her cousin, the parents are asleep and things happen. This is one hospital reporting a thousand of these per year. Now add to that those who are not reporting their own abuse. And now you multiply that across all the hospitals in America, Canada, Central America. I mean, it's mind boggling the fallout. And now I'm meeting the girls and they're telling me they identify as asexual now that I don't want that stuff. Because if that's what sex is, what I saw on my phone or what that boy did to me when he was 12, counting me out. And so they're now defining these new gender identities and sexual identities based on their revulsion of the abuse of sexuality. And so it's a mess, but thanks be to God, young people are wanting to break free from it. It's almost like smoking was cool in the 1970s. Hey, we got an ashtray in your car, totally harmless. And then the 80s, 90s came out and it was like, oh, it does what to your lungs? Oh, ugh, that's not so cool. And so I think we're starting to see the effects of porn on the human heart. And I think more and more people are going to want to break free, but they need the tools to learn how to do that. Talk to me a little bit about the tools. What type of work are you doing there? Well, one, you can't go Lone Ranger. That's, the, that's just going to keep you locked in forever. You've got to have accountability. So one resource we created is called Forged. It's a book that's a 33-day program you can do with other guys, father to son, young adult groups together. And every day of the book, you get a free video emailed to you that it's going to address not just the spiritual and theological standpoint on this, but the neurological, the physiological, the psychological, the, the, the triggers. When am I messing up? Is it when I'm bored and lonely and angry and stressed and tired? Well, maybe there's some legitimate needs there that need to get taken care of. And until I can learn how to address those in a mature and healthy way, then I'm just going to be doing symptom management. I treat lust like it's the only battle that I'm trying to fight. It's like, no, there's a, there's a war of affective or emotional maturity that needs to take place. Otherwise, I'm going to end up being some 28-year-old guy with the emotional maturity of a 14-year-old boy. And guys don't want to be... The 35-year-old porn-addicted father of a five-year-old daughter, like, like, look, look, that's not an option, okay? Surrender, defeat is not on the table. And so these guys that I'm finding is they want to break free, but they're just not sure how to do it. And so in Forged, we give them those tools, encourage them to use things like covenant eyes that will block porn and send a report to you, whether it's your parents or accountability partner. We've got to fight and win this thing because love's at stake. Gosh, as as you're talking, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, my passion and focus in ministry is helping pastors and bishops really turn parishes around. And as you're talking about this stuff, right away, my head's thinking, oh my gosh, I would love to, if I'm a pastor, to take a whole year and say, as we do everything else we're doing, our theme this year is going to be sexual, is chastity, is, is sexual health, relational health, and authentic love. And we're going to, like, I develop, like, it's almost the resources you have available would yeah. really help mobilize an entire church to, to fortify parents and, and to have these conversations. Program. Anyway, what are your thoughts? What kinds of, what ways have you seen these resources get used at a parish level that's bringing life and hope. 
Uh, well, we've got a curriculum based on John Paul II's Theology of the Body. It's called You, Life, Love, and the Theology of the Body. So if you're working with catechizing junior high or high school kids, get this thing, show it to the kids. I mean, it's they did a fantastic job with the cinematography of this thing with drones and cathedrals in New York City and Miami Beach. And it's really riveting just to look at, but the content, because it's Theology of the Body, is so beautiful and so rich. And so young people need to know, like, who am I? You know, what is God's plan for my life, my body, my heart, all, all that? And so you could use the U curriculum. We also have just tons of books and booklets. If your parish can't afford it, uh, just go to chassis.com and you can submit a project and we'll send it to you for free if you don't have the budget for it. Everything we create is like $3 roughly or less so that you can get this in bulk and then just give it away to the kids. They're starving for this stuff. I know one college girl, she's like, man, if the girls on my campus just knew this, like they would just save themselves so much heartbreak. I'm going to do a book study on the dorm. She started a book study, a book we called, wrote called How to Find Your Soulmate Without Losing Your Soul, and it got too big. Too many girls joined it. So they said, okay, we'll start one on the second floor of the dorm, and then we'll just split it up. That got too big. Before you knew it, they had one on every floor of the girls' dorm of girls pouring themselves through this and breaking up with boyfriends. And so, so we just need to be apostles to this message. But most of all, not just by giving out books, we have to live it ourselves. And so yes. as pastors, I remember one saint said that if the if the pastor is a saint, I mean, the people will be devout. If the pastor is devout, the people will be pious. You know, and if the pastor is pious, the people will be faithful. But if the pastor is just faithful, they'll be lukewarm. And if the pastor is lukewarm, the people will be godless. And so we need to realize our primary mode of evangelization is ourselves, not making a project out of everybody else. And so we need to pursue holiness ourselves and make sure we're not bringing porn and the garbage into our marriage and our rectories, because otherwise, how do we transmit what we're not living? Mm, amen. Amen. Well, I've never heard what you just said before. I'm going to go back and listen to this podcast and write all that down. <laughs> that, was, that was so cool. And I agree. And I say the same thing as it relates to leadership. So often uh, clergy may look at leadership as, you know, the problem with my church is people aren't doing what I'm telling them to do. It's about them. It's about their behavior. And it's like, Oh no, it's your transformation is the primacy. Your transformation is prime. From that, you'll be able, God will develop you into the leader that your church needs to be explosively impactful and generous. And, and so that's what I'm hearing you say as well. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's hard with the clergy because they're expected to not struggle with these things. But right. I know a priest who does lots of ministry of to priests and seminarians. And I asked him like, what, what's the landscape in the seminaries? How are the guys doing with this issue? And he said, oh, at least half of the seminarians are still addicted to pornography. I'm like, oh, I'm like, well, how many have at least broken free by the time they get ordained? And he said, you don't even want to know. And so if as a pastor, you're struggling with this thing, make sure you've got accountability in terms of fellowship, other priests that you can talk to, a a steady confessor, like you're not alone in this by virtue of the fact that you have a collar and you wear clerics. It doesn't mean you're bulletproof, but you've got to have that fellowship in your life, that authenticity to be able to break free from this stuff that maybe it's had its claws in you for 30 years, but it's, it's still not too late to be able to have accountability, to be able to break free and be the witness that you need to be for the parish. Wow. I have uh, both my kids are both in university. They're both student athletes and really excited for them to be there. And COVID, of course, everything seemed to be online in Canada and they're just getting back, um, you know, to life as we would have known it previously, although not there yet, but getting pretty close. What are some of the concerns that parents, um, you know, when it comes to faith, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to relationship, what, you know, how can, what, what, what could parents be doing right now? 
Well, parents need to get over their insecurities when it comes to talking about the subject, because a lot of the parents were never talked to by their parents. And so they think, well, my kid's not going to listen to what I say anyway. And so they just get quiet. But, you know, if you don't speak up, the world will fill the void of your silence with a very contrary message. In fact, they've asked high school kids, what's the number one factor that shapes your sexual behavior? Is it the friends, is it the media? And they asked the teens. The teenager's number one reply was my parents and what they brought me up to believe. And so parents are the primary sex educators, not YouTube influencers and podcasters and chastity speakers. No, it's the parents. They are the primary evangelists of their children. So they need to start early and often. And it's not just the talk they're giving to their kid. This is a lifelong conversation in the subject. I'll never forget the talk my mom gave me. I'm still getting counseling for that. It was really, yeah. she, she did her best. She did her yeah, best. Yeah. But <laughs> it was probably a very scary topic for her to approach back then. And she's a wonderful faith-filled person. And that's the reason I have faith today. But I just yeah, yeah. the and, thought and of parents that. Parents need to get over that hump. Because I mean, a lot of us are just afraid. I don't want the conflict. I don't want the awkwardness. I don't want this. Like, get over it. Yeah. I mean, really, what's at stake here? Is your comfort the number one value of the family? It's like, no, the kid might be uncomfortable. You may be uncomfortable. That's okay. That's the only way you get to an authentic relationship is plowing through that awkwardness and just learning to share your life. And look, maybe you weren't some spotless virgin on your wedding night. That doesn't disqualify you from teaching this because your authority comes from your parenthood, not from your profession. Amen. Amen. I know that we uh, engaged with some books uh, that were age appropriate that talked about God's plan for sexuality. And it was really cool because the book itself, as you would read it, it was a conversation between a daughter and her dad or a daughter and her mom or son. Or, and and so, and after every chapter, there was, it talked about something specific and then there'd be three questions. And so you'd read this dialogue mm-hmm. and then you'd have one yourself with your children. And not yeah. often as, as I was be driving with the kids sports, uh, we'd pull out the book, we'd read a chapter and then we talk about it while we're driving. And then we put the tunes back on and jam out to our favorite songs. Yeah. Um, and it was just such a beautiful time as a dad to be able to have those conversations about sexuality with my kids mm-hmm. that were age appropriate, that were Christ centered and that were honoring God. It just made all the difference in the world for me and, and my children. And so. Yeah, and, and, if, and if mom talks about it, but dad doesn't, the kids will kind of assume dad disagrees with mom and he's just being respectful because wink, wink, dad, you know, boys are going to be boys. It has to be father and mother together on this subject instead of just dumped on the mother to be the one to bring in the message of chastity. We have to be a team in the effort. Love that. Love that. So as we wind up, let me just ask you, what is your hope for your ministry, the ministry that you're doing and how people can connect and what impact it will have for them? Well, ultimately the, the church's teachings on human sexuality are good news. It's not a list of prohibitions and a litany of rules you got to obey so you don't go to hell. It's about actually learning to want heaven for the person that you love. So John Paul II suggests that he can only be thought of in association with the virtue of law. And right now, the family is under tremendous attack because the family is the weapon of choice by the father. I mean, think about how redemption became possible through a holy family. And God doesn't change his ways. And so what's needed are holy families. And so we've got to realize that lust is the enemy of human love. We need to be vigilant in guarding our marriages from this and protecting our kids and ultimately embracing it ourselves. And so at chastity.com and the different resources and the books that we do, you know, God willing, we can grow to a staff of 100 people 
because you think how badly the world needs this message. Like we need a team. And so we need supporters for prayer and financial stuff. And, um, and just let the ministry be as big or as small as God wants it to be. Uh, all we need to do is make sure we're saying yes to his plan for our life on a daily basis. And I think he'll take care of the rest of the details. Amen. So for all you parents and, and clergy that are listening today, head on over to that website and, and just pray and discern. Take a look at the resources. I really believe that what you're on to, Jason, and, and how God has placed that burden on your heart to be a blessing to so many others is such an important conversation and issue today. So thank you for your work. God bless you. Continue on and uh, we'll be uh, praying for you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work yourself. There will be several podcasts this season that will speak into issues of sexuality, which will make great conversation starters for friends, parents, and church leaders. I'm grateful to Jason and the way that he's lived out the call that God has placed in his heart. Please take the time to rate this podcast five-star if you're listening on iTunes. It helps boost the reach of the show. Consider visiting the website at ronhuntley.com. Head to the bottom of the page and subscribe for the latest We have some very helpful and practical tools being launched this year to help make your work as a leader more fruitful. Thank you for listening. I want to encourage you, as you lead this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time. And remember, if you're still breathing, you are powered for impact.